0: Lord, as we look at this passage in First Kings 8 this morning, I pray that we would be drawn closer to you and that we would be encouraged in drawing near to you in prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll be in First Kings 8 this morning. If you've got your Bible, feel free to turn there. Uh, you guys might know, if, if you wanted to get a yawn or low attendance at a conference, just tell somebody that you're going to talk about prayer. Um that's the response. The truth is, most of us, uh, prayer sounds like a boring topic, and, and I suppose sometimes it is. Uh, we actually will be looking at a passage this morning that is a lengthy prayer, and I'll try and stay moving briskly so we can get through all of it. We'll be in verses 22 through 66, and actually, I normally try and go over every verse, frankly, this morning, we will skim portions of this passage just so we can get through it. This is one prayer and I I didn't want to break it down. I wanted to take the whole thing. But prayer can be as simple as a yell for help or it can be a lengthy prayer like Solomon's this morning or anything in between. You know, at its most basic level, prayer is just a person talking to God. It's just talking to God. So any of us can do that. We don't need training to do that. On the other hand, Remember in the Gospels when the disciples know that their rabbi, their, the Messiah Jesus, was praying, and what, you remember what they said to him? Lord, you teach us to pray. In other words, you tell us what we need to know about approaching God in prayer. And so he gave them at least an outline. Most of us know it as a prayer called the Lord's Prayer, but it's certainly an outline as well about important concepts to take into account when you want to approach God. If you say prayer is a formula, some people will talk about, you know, seven steps to success, uh, habits to pray effectively. I don't want to say any of that about prayer. Because it's a relationship, we're not trying to figure out a mechanism by which we can get God to do what we want. We're trying to learn, Lord, more about you and the relationship in a way of communicating with God our Father in prayer that honors him and is good for us. And I think as you see Solomon's prayer this morning, we'll see some of the elements that compose that. So prayer, I hope this isn't a honor or boring. I've been encouraged by it and I hope you will be too. Starting at verse 22, by the way, in your mind's eye, something that helps me, remember the setting here. The temple, it's been seven years in the building. It's of magnificent structure. And expense, it's the best of the best in the world as far as the materials and the workmanship. It's all gold inside. It's costly stones outside. You can still go to Jerusalem today and see the foundation stones that Solomon laid from this period. That's the western or the wailing wall in Jerusalem today. But this immense structure at immense cost was finally done. And if you remember, we've already read that the priest, all the nation has come to Jerusalem. They're up on the Temple Mount. That elevated portion of the southern hill of Mount Moriah we talked about last week. And the priests had already taken in the Ark of the Covenant into the new Holy of Holies. And do you remember what happened? This cloud, this shining cloud of glory representing God's presence had come down and filled the inside of the temple so that the priests couldn't stay in there. They had to get out like ants coming out of a tunnel. They fled the temple. They couldn't stand in God's presence. And now all the priests and all the people up there on the Temple Mount, and Solomon, if you remember, is on this raised brass platform so that he can be seen and heard. And Solomon now continues his address as he prays to dedicate this new temple. It says, Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, and he spread out his hands toward heaven. He said, O Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath keeping covenant and loving kindness to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You who have kept with your servant my father David that which you have promised him. Indeed, you have spoken with your mouth and have fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. Now therefore, O Lord, the God of Israel, keep with your servant David my father that which you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit on the throne of Israel if only your sons take heed to their way. To walk before me as you have walked. Now, therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, let your word, I pray, be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant, my father, David. Notice the very first thing when Solomon starts his prayer. Do you notice that he introduces himself to God by name? By the way, when it says Lord in capital letters in most Bibles, it means Yahweh. When Solomon addresses God, he doesn't say, he doesn't use other terms. He could have forgotten El. Was the common name for God in the Middle East L-E-L or Elohim? Could have been used of other gods too. When Solomon addresses God, the first thing he does is he calls God by his covenant name. Yahweh is the name God revealed himself to Israel only with. So gods in other countries might be called El and other Gentiles might call the God of Israel El, but the God of Israel revealed himself to Moses and to Israel through the name Yahweh. I am that I am. To Moses, when Moses says, Lord, who do I say sent me? You say, Yahweh sent me. The God who is, or the God who was, or the God who always will be. Yahweh sent me. So as soon as Solomon talks to God, he calls him by his covenant name. He calls him by the name that said to God, Lord, I know who you are, and I'm already in a relationship with you. You're the God of My fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You're the God of Moses. You're the God that we, Israel, have a covenant with. It was personal. So as soon as he introduces himself in prayer to God, he calls God by God's covenant name. It was personal. He says, God, when I come to you, I acknowledge, and you acknowledge that we are in relation with you. He calls him by his private name, if you will, his personal name, Yahweh. That's the first thing he did. The second thing he did was, he said, uh, he starts with a short list here, but he describes God, both his character and his history. So he says, God, you are unique. There's no one like you. He says, in heaven above or on earth beneath, Lord, you're the only one like you. You know, for us today in a pluralistic society, we often recognize that there are people who have a religious perspective that we don't share. So we'd say we understand there's Buddhists or there's... Um, Islamists or whatever but you know that's a little different than in this day Israel was just this little island that believed in one God everybody else believed in many gods monotheism was the rare rare exception in the ancient world everybody else had all their gods and so when Solomon says there's no one like you he's saying you're God and no one else is you're the God of the heavens and the earth you're it And we acknowledge that you are unique. You're not like anything else that has a claim to be God. Then he also says this. He says, Lord, you're faithful. And then he rehearses in his own mind. Lord, you've been faithful in keeping your covenant with Israel. The promises you made to Israel, you've kept. And he said, you've already kept the promise you made to my father David. If you remember, Solomon said the promise that God had already kept was that David would have a son who would sit on his throne, ruling Israel, and who would build the temple. So when Solomon stands, David's son, before the completed temple, he says, God, you've already kept that promise. I'm David's son, I rule Israel, and the temple's complete. You've kept your promise. Remember the king before David? His son didn't follow after him to rule on the throne of Israel. Saul, Saul's successors ruled very briefly and only part of the nation. God had already kept one promise to David. His son Solomon had built the temple. So he he reminds God, you've been faithful to the covenant. You've already kept one promise to my father David. And then he says, you've fulfilled it with your hand today. We stand here today because you've kept your promise. The temple's completed. And that's why we stand here today. And then he also says in verse 23, you show loving kindness to your servants. And by the way, this term, this Hebrew word, loving kindness, hesed or kesed, means loyal love. And it's the second most used term to describe God besides holy. God is holy. And he also described this key characteristic that he is loyal in his love. He's faithful. That's his key characteristic besides being utterly unique in his holiness. God is faithful. So Solomon's going to go through a list of requests we might call it a laundry list by my count there's 10 things he's going to ask god for some others say 7 depending on the way you parse this out but he's got a laundry list to go over with god but before he starts before he asks one thing he starts by saying god we're in relationship with you we know you by name you're yahweh and we know what you're like you're faithful you've kept your past promises You've kept your promise to my father, David, and we know that you're a loyal, loving God. And it's only when he said all that that he begins to take up any requests at all. And when he does, the second thing to keep in mind in this very first passage, when he says, keep with your servant David that which you promised, he's looking to the future. He's saying, God, might you keep the promise in the future? But the request that God would keep a promise in the future is based on a promise God has already made. So when Solomon begins his requests, he begins with things he knows God is already committed to. Already committed to. Sometimes you and I wonder, how can we pray things that God will actually do? And I don't mean manipulatively. How can I get God to give me what I want. I'm not quite talking about that. But if, if I could actually think that I could pray and God would do the things I ask, that would be exciting. And so, but sometimes prayer seems boring because it seems disconnected. We feel like we get in a corner and we talk to a God we can't see and nothing happens. But if I thought I could actually go and hide in that corner and God would be present and I could ask Him to do things and He would do them, I'd feel entirely different about prayer. Solomon, this is one of the ways you do that. You pray for what you know God's committed to. And this isn't manipulative on God's side. This is us joining God in the things he's declared he's doing in the world. We join with God in what he's doing. And we see them get done. So, when you and I approach prayer, and I don't mean if you just need sometimes prayer is, Lord, help me. And that's that's okay because that's what you need to say then. In other times, prayers, Lord, thank you. And that's good too. But when you're thinking, Lord, how do I come before you just day to day, approach you in prayer, the very beginning of Solomon is the way we can do it too. We address God personally. And by the way, Solomon could only call God Yahweh. This was a good thing, but this was limited. You and I, we have a better name for God. If you've trusted Christ as your Savior, God calls you as child. That makes God your father. So in the Lord's Prayer, the model in the New Testament, Jesus doesn't tell his disciples to call God Yahweh, the name of the covenant, the old covenant. He says you call God Father. In fact, in Romans 8, it says that if you're a Christian, you have the Spirit, and the Spirit within you compels you to call out to God, not just Father, a formal title, but to call out Dad or Daddy, Abba. That's the Hebrew word means more like Dad. So when we approach God today, Jesus says, you call him Father. Now You can imagine, if one of my children went to a neighbor down the street and knocked on their door and said, would you give me $20 to fill up my car with gas? We have great neighbors, but you know what they might think? No way. Why? Because they're not responsible to fill up their gas tank. But when one of my children comes to me and they say, Dad, can I have $20 to fill up the car? I'm in relationship with this child who calls me dad. I feel responsibility. And I give them the $20. That's what we're talking about here. When you and I, as children of God, as those who've trusted in Christ, when we approach Him, we approach Him as His children. We say, Dad, there's things we'd like to talk to you about, there's things that I would like to unload to you about or ask you to intervene concerning. We're in relationship. We call him Dad. And we don't just stop there. You know, if my children came up and said, Dad, give me the money and let me get out of here. They wouldn't get it, would they? They wouldn't get it because they're dishonoring our relationship. They're disrespecting me. But if, if they come up and they say, Dad, great guy that you are. Super Dad. Loving and Faithful. Could I have that twenty dollars? You know, then I'm a pushover, right? Now this isn't. And this would be manipulation. I'm sure if my daughters did it. But when we go before God, we're really we're reminding ourselves in His presence of what's true of Him. And if you didn't go any further than this, if you introduced yourself to God in that relationship, Dad, you're my Dad, and I know who you are and what you're like. You are God. There's no other. And I know you're faithful, and I know you keep your promises. You know what? If you just quit praying right there, you'd be encouraged, and you'd go away encouraged and feeling better. But that's the best place to start when, whatever your normal routine in prayer is, start by addressing God as your Father, reminding yourself in His presence I'm your child, and you're stuck with me, and you've got responsibility towards me, and I know what you're like. I know you're faithful, and I know you're loving, and I know you're kind, and I know you keep your promises. And we can make it very personal by saying, and Lord, thanks for the ways you've blessed me with whatever that is. If if it's a job or a spouse, children, provision, income, whatever. We rehearse in our own mind, Lord, thanks for the ways you've blessed me in the past. Then we can get down to the business of asking for God because we're in the right state of mind. We've acknowledged who he is and we've acknowledged his faithfulness and his character. And then we're at a point where we can present our needs to Him. But this is a great introduction. You can't go far wrong if you address God in this way. He continues at verse 27. Remember, he's dedicating the temple, and I love it. He starts his dedication by saying what the temple is not. He digresses before he even gets to his prayer about the temple. He says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house which I have built. Before he prays that God will honor the temple, he says, God, I know something about this temple already. It's not your house. It is your house, but it's not where you live. That is, it doesn't contain you. The cloud came down, this shining presence of God, into the temple to show God was there. But Solomon says, Lord, I know you're going to meet with us here, but I know this house doesn't contain you. It doesn't limit you. Remember, God is omnipresent. The universe doesn't have a corner in which God doesn't dwell. And Solomon knows this. So he says, Lord, when we dedicate this temple, we understand it's a meeting place. It's a meeting place. But it doesn't contain or constrain you. And the temple itself is not magical. And the ark, it's not magical. Do you remember in 1 Samuel 4 when Israel's being attacked by the Philistines? They resort to magic. And the magic is this. We'll take the Ark of the Covenant. We'll take it with us in the battle. And then no one can defeat us. Why? Because we've got this magic. We've got the Ark of God. The God of the universe will be with us in battle will be unbeatable. And what happens? The Philistines defeat them. And what do they do with the Ark? They take it to their cities. Now, God judges them, and they don't want to keep hold of it, and they send it back. But you see, to the Jews at the time, they felt like we've got God in the box. So we take God in the box with us, and we're good to go. It didn't happen. Do you remember the movie Indiana Jones? And help me out. What's the name? The something. Whatever, the one, the ark. Is it the first one? Thank you. Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's the same thing. The Ark becomes a talisman. It becomes this magic symbol. And in the movie, Hitler thinks if I get the box, I get God in the box and I've got power. Well, see, Solomon here, he digresses and he says, Lord, we know we don't have God in the box. We don't have God in the temple, so to speak, in any way that contains or constrains him. Lord, we acknowledge this is like your footstool. And like you're sitting up there on Orion and your feet are kind of touching down here on Mount Moriah where this temple is built. But we understand it's just a place that we meet with you. It doesn't diminish you. It doesn't contain you. It doesn't constrain you. He says, yet, noting that of the limited value, so to speak, that the temple is, yet have regard to the prayer of your servant. And to his supplication, O Lord my God, to listen to the cry and to the prayer which your servant prays before you today, this is kind of the key verse, 29 and 30 in this passage, that your eyes may be opened toward this house, night and day, toward the place of which you have said, My name shall be there, to listen to the prayer which your servant shall pray toward this place, listen to the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place, here in heaven your dwelling place, Hear and forgive. The request here is Lord, would you listen to the prayers that are offered from this temple or towards this temple? That is, we acknowledge that the temple is the place on earth that you'll meet with us. And so, would you honor, would you listen to and hear and act on the prayers made from this place? that's where you meet with us, or towards this place. If you're in Jerusalem, you can go up to the Temple Mount. But if you're not, Solomon says even when we pray towards this place, when we're someplace else, but we turn towards Jerusalem, acknowledging that's where you meet with us, would you hear those prayers? And also listen to this. He says, hear and forgive. Six out of the ten prayer requests Solomon makes include this issue of forgiveness. Why do you think that is? Because sin and forgiveness are constant issues. Sin and forgiveness are issues. And so he'll bring this up again. And again, six out of the ten requests deal with forgiveness. But he says, Lord, would you listen to the prayers made to you from here or towards here? And when we pray, would you forgive? Would you forgive? He's going to take these up, starting at verse 31. These are the specific addresses or requests he makes. Verse 31, If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and he comes and takes an oath before your altar in the house, here in heaven act and judge. Condemn the wicked, justify the righteous. This is the case. A neighbor makes a claim against another neighbor. And a counterclaim is made. And they don't know who's right and who's wrong. Does this sound familiar? 1 Kings 3, two women come to Solomon. They come to the throne of justice. They both make a claim and a counterclaim. There's no way to decide, do you remember, whose child is it. But they figure it out, don't they? Solomon says, bring the sword. Solomon writes that large here. And he says, Lord, when people bring a claim and a counterclaim, you remember one woman's lying. And one one woman's willing to let the baby be killed because she's not the real mother. That's wickedness. Solomon says, when claim and counterclaim are made against each other, And those people come to your temple and they take an oath that what they're saying is true. Lord, might you be the judge. You do what we can't. You condemn the wicked and you vindicate the righteous. We can't do that, but you can. So when social or civil complaints are lodged one against another and those people come to the temple, Lord, would you make the justice, justify or vindicate the righteous and condemn the wicked? Would you keep justice in the nation? Verse 33, When your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you, if they turn to you again and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you in this house, here in heaven and forgive the sin of your people and bring them back. Solomon says there will be times in the future when we sin and we'll face enemies in battle and they'll defeat us and they'll take some of us captive. And Lord, when that happens and we turn and repent, would you restore those who were taken captive? Restore them. Bring them back. Get them back to the land where they belong. They're going to be defeated because of sin. Lord, would you forgive them? And would you bring the captives back home? Verse 35, When the heavens are shut up and there's no rain because they've sinned against you, and they pray towards this place and confess your name, and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants and send rain. Send rain. Israel's kind of like western Kansas. It's agricultural, but you've got to have the rains. It's a semi-arid place. You've got to have the rains, and you've got to have them at the right times, or you're in trouble. And Solomon says, Lord, in the days ahead when there's no rain, because we've sinned and we repent, Would you forgive us again, and then would you send the rain again? Would you give us the rain again? In each one of these cases, the sin brings on God's chastisement or his judgment. And when the people turn and repent and pray and confess, God's free to take the judgment or the chastisement away because the relationship is right again. So he says, Lord, in the future, when there's sin that that brings about your chastisement in the form of drought, when they confess and repent and turn back to you and pray again, Lord, forgive and send the rain. Verse 37, if there's famine in the land, pestilence, blight, mildew, locusts or grasshopper, if the enemy besieges them in the land of their cities, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer or supplication is made by any man, any individual, or by all your people Israel, here in heaven, your dwelling place, forgive and act and render to each according to all his ways. In this sense, if there was sin, God might judge by famine, pestilence, blight, locusts. This would be when there were crops, but something destroyed them. Or when it says if they're shut up in the cities, you remember in the ancient world, most cities, major cities, all had walls. So if an enemy besieged, what did you do? You retreated behind the walls. Well... Given enough time, hygiene and public health became issues and you would have disease spread in these contained cities. That's verse 38. So Solomon says, Lord, when your chastisement looks like any of this, where we lose our crops to pestilence or grasshoppers or where we have plagues because we're shut up in these cities, surrounded by enemies. I love this. He says, if even an individual turns to you. It doesn't even have to be the whole city. He says, if just an individual or the group turns to you, Lord, would you here in heaven forgive and render to each according to his ways? Would you restore? If judgment takes this place, Lord, would you restore? By the way, I love this too. This passage of this prayer is quoted in prayer about a hundred years later by Solomon's descendant, King Jehoshaphat when enemy armies are getting ready to invade Israel. And Jehoshaphat does what Solomon, his forebear, did. He prays to God according to God's word, Solomon's word here. God hears and he delivers them. In fact, if you remember the story, this is the one where they don't send out their army. They send out their worship team. And the worship team goes forward and they praise God in song. And when they get to the enemy armies, God has destroyed them. They don't even shoot an arrow or lift a sword. But Jehoshaphat prayed. He quoted this passage in 1 Kings 8. He quoted Solomon's prayer in his prayer. And God heard and answered just like Solomon asked and delivered Israel. Verse 41. I love this one too. Uh, concerning the foreigner who is not of your people Israel, concerning the Gentiles. Now, by birth, that's most of us. If you weren't born a Jew, you were born a Gentile. Concerning the foreigner, the Gentile, who is not of your people Israel, when he comes from a far country for your namesake, they're going to hear about your great name and your mighty hand, and they're going to come. When he comes and prays towards his house, here in heaven, your dwelling place, do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that. For this reason, Lord, that all the peoples of the earth may know your name, to fear you just like your people Israel do, and that they may know that this house which I have built is called by your name. This is in my opinion the most selfless of the prayers Solomon makes here. He prays that the Gentiles would come to know God just like Israel did. This has nothing to do with the Jews. It it doesn't help the Jews per se. But he prays that Gentiles would come to know and fear God and be in relationship with him in Jerusalem at the temple, which is his meeting place, and that God would be magnified in the doing. This prayer has nothing to do with Israel's benefit per se. Solomon says, Lord, would you bless the Gentiles. When they come, just like the Queen of Sheba in 1 Kings 10, when they come because they hear about you in this place, and your mighty acts, And they pray to the God of Israel who meets with us at this temple. Lord, would you hear and answer their prayer so that they'll know you like we do. So that they'll know you're the true God. So they'll believe in you like we do. That's for their benefit and it's to God's glory. But it doesn't help Solomon per se. It doesn't help Israel per se. This is the most selfless, I think, of all the prayers made here. I love it. Verse 44, When your people go out to battle against their enemy by whatever you shall send them, And they pray to the Lord toward the city which you have chosen and the house which I have built for your name hear in heaven, their prayer, their supplication, and maintain their cause. You know, Israel as God's people would always be challenged by surrounding nations. God's people historically are always threatened by those folks who don't know God. And Solomon says, Lord, in the future when enemy nations seek to come and do us harm, would you support us? In battle, would you maintain our cause in battle? Would you defeat the enemy armies that come to destroy us? Verse 46. When they sin against you, for there is no man who does not sin. This is a good memory verse. When they sin against you, for there is no man who does not sin. There's no man who doesn't sin. Remember we talked about sin as an issue in this? Six times out of ten prayer requests deal with sin. Sin's an issue because we all sin. Sin's an issue because we sin. And you're angry with them and you deliver them to an enemy so that they take them away captive to the land of the enemy far off or near if they take thought in the land where they've been taken captive and repent and make supplication to you and say we have sinned, we have acted wickedly if they return to you with their heart and soul hear their prayer and their supplication in heaven, your dwelling place, and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you and make them objects of compassion before those who have taken them captive. Does this sound familiar? This is Israel in captivity, isn't it? This is the destruction of the temple in 586 B.C. This is the deportation to Babylon. This is exactly what happened. And by the way, When Solomon prays, everything he's mentioned here, none of this was new to him. Almost everything he's mentioned is in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. So when he's praying according to God's will, and when he says, Lord, by the way, when we, your people, sin in the future, and it looks like this, and your judgment looks like that, he's quoting, he's referencing Leviticus and Deuteronomy. He knew Israel would do these things because God said they would. So he's not even making this up. He's not thinking, gosh, what is it likely that my descendants will do? He already knows because God's already said. So he's referencing those things God has already said. And he said, Lord, when they do it and they turn, then forgive them. And this last one is the deportation by the Babylonians. And God said he would do this in Deuteronomy 30. This was part of the curse. By the way, related to all of these, you remember that when god or excuse me when solomon calls god yahweh it's the name of god as the covenant god and you remember under the old covenant if israel obeys they get blessing they get rain at the right time in the right amount they get many children they're the head of the nations not the tail etc etc but when they disobey what do they get the list of curses in deuteronomy goes on and on and on god would chastise them to get them to turn and to come back And this is in Deuteronomy 30. God says there will come a day when I kick you out of the land in judgment. But you'll come back. You'll repent and you'll come back. If you read in Daniel 9, not referencing this passage, but in Babylon, Daniel, one of the captives, he read Jeremiah's prophecies. And when he read them, he realized that Jeremiah had said God would send you captive into Babylon, but it'd be for a time and then it'd be over. And when you read Daniel's prayer in Daniel 9, it's in the same light. God, you said we'd do it. We did it. And now I'm looking forward to our national confession and repentance so that you can turn and bring us back to the land, which he does. And you can read about that in the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, Zechariah. So all this Solomon's prayer is not original. It's based on Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And Solomon knew Israel will sin in the future. God's judgments will take these forms. But God, when they pray, when this happens, and they turn and they repent, hear their prayers, forgive, and bring them back in restoration. Winding down at verse 54, when Solomon had finished praying this entire prayer and supplication to the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread toward heaven. You remember when we started, it said he was standing? It doesn't tell us when he started kneeling, but he did. And I love this. Physically, when Solomon is talking to the people, he's standing. He's approaching equals, as it were, at least in their humanity. So he's standing. But when he was addressing God, he was kneeling with his hands stretched out. In other words, he not only verbally was humble before God, But physically, he demonstrated that even though he was the king, he was at the top of the heap in Israel, he was indicating that before God, he was a servant and a slave. So when he prayed, he knelt. And there's a lot to be said for us when we approach God. Humility in word or in physical posture is a great thing. When we kneel to pray or lie down or whatever... For us is that posture, physical posture of humility. This is just an appropriate thing. Because we're we're acknowledging before God. You're God, we're not. You're God and we're not your equal. We're subject to you. And we acknowledge when we bow in adoration or humility that you're God and we're not. And we're taking the low place, the place that is appropriate for us. Humility just means having a right assessment for ourselves. And if you remember in the encounters in the scriptures, when a person stands before God, what happens? They fall down. They can't can't physically stand before God because of his greatness and his power. They fall down. They assume a position of humility. The rest of this goes on. It talks about the sacrifices I need to wind down. In closing, I do want to say this, though. Related to prayer or related to praying in general... If you have time, if if all you have time for in prayer is the Lord help me, Uh, I'm in a crisis, I'm in an emergency or I've got to say something or I don't know what to do and all you can get out is Lord help, that's enough and God knows what you mean and that's fine. And if there's other times when all you want to do is just say thanks Lord, that's great too. But on the day-to-day level when you want to interact with the living God, when you want to talk to him about things I still think Solomon's prayer, it's one of the greatest prayers in the Old Testament. And by the way, it follows the rough outline of the prayer Jesus gives in Matthew and in Luke about this model for prayer as well. And when you and I approach God just on a daily basis, do so calling Him Father, our Father, our Father. We're in relation with you, Lord. We acknowledge we're your children, you're our Father. We acknowledge that. And to remember to declare as you approach Him what's true of Him, what He's like, what His character is, and how He's already kept promises and given you blessings in the past. This sets us up because it reminds us of what's true. It takes us out of whatever else is going on in our life and it reminds us of who God is and what's true of Him and what He's like. And then, by the way, this is something we often forget, but it's really appropriate. This is a great time to take stock, and to confess sin. You know, we could do this every day. Do you remember the verse that said, Solomon says, there's not a man who doesn't sin. Romans 3 says, we all sin and fall short of God's glory. James says, uh, we often sin. All of us sin, often, or in many ways. So sin's an ongoing issue for all of us. So when we approach God, when we confess those sins... We're just clearing obstacles to our fellowship. You know that if my child comes up to me and I've got an issue with them and they're asking to go out for, or for whatever, one thing or another, and you know what I, I would say? Sorry, we've got an issue to resolve before we talk about other things. And when we are praying before God and we confess our sins, we're simply clearing hurdles to our fellowship. Then we can come and bring our requests But the sin is an obstacle. Isaiah talks about this. The New Testament talks about that it's our sin that keeps God from hearing. Not that he doesn't hear, but from answering our prayer. So this is an appropriate time. It's a great time to simply, before God, confess whatever it is that you know is wrong between you and him. Whatever the issues are in your life that you know aren't pleasing to him. And then make your requests known. Then make your requests known. And when you do, as much as possible, try to do this. This is one reason why it's important to be in your Bible. When you pray, try to pray along the lines that you know God wants to answer anyway. The Scripture is full of promises for God's provision to us. It's not for lack of promises or information that we couldn't pray according to God's will. So, if it's emotional comfort, if it's Monetary needs, if it's, it could be 101 things. All of us face various trials. The scripture, there's nothing significant in life that the scriptures don't address or cover in one way or another. So when you pray, as far as you're able, try to pray according to God's will by reminding Him of what He said concerning whatever your issue is or whatever your need is. Philippians 4 is a great passage which says, God will provide for our needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. But if you don't know that, you can't think that and you can't pray that. Or in 2 Corinthians when Paul talks about giving, Paul says that God wants to cause you to abound in everything so that you'll have plenty so that you can share with others. When I approach God with my material or monetary needs, I remember that verse and I pray that. And say, God, would you magnify your provision for us so we have enough and plenty to spare, to share. But whatever it is, whatever the issue in your life is, Try to put in the context of what you know is already true about what God wants and then pray along that line. There are times in which we might pray for things and we might think, Lord, we don't know what you want. We're not sure what your will is. Then you can say that, Lord, this is what I like. I don't know what your thoughts on our ideas, but I, I ask you this and know that you'll dispose as you see best. And we can certainly do that as well. As I said at the beginning, this is not a formula for successful prayer. Uh, God is not constrained to the temple, and He's not constrained to our formulas for successful prayer. But as as part of a real relationship with a real person, this is just a great model to remind us about what a good, healthy relationship with God looks like. Our relationship with Him is that of children. We know who he is and what he's like, and we declare that to be true. We keep short accounts. We confess those things that we know are at odds with his will, and then we make those requests known. And, you know, something you can do along that line is, many people do, keep a journal and write down those requests that you've made of God and see what he does. And over time, I think you'd be surprised at how many prayers God does answer. Let's pray. Lord, wonder of wonders that the God of the universe should bow down as you did in Solomon's day, making yourself known in this cloud of glory, inhabiting the temple. And Lord, better than that today, you've sent your spirit to live inside each and every one of us who calls on the name of your son, the Lord Jesus. And Father, while we have no thought that we can manipulate the all-wise God, or somehow pull the wool over your eyes to get what we want, Father, we acknowledge that you have adopted us as your children because you love us, and that your will towards us is only good, and that having given us your Son for our redemption, you wouldn't withhold any good thing from us. Father, help us to keep short accounts with you, to repent early and often, so you are free to bless, so that we are free in our relationship with you. Lord, thanks for models of healthy prayer like we see from Solomon and as Jesus gave as well. And thanks that better than Yahweh we can address you as Father and pour our hearts out to you. Lord, we love you. Thank you for giving us your son. Thank you for making us your children. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.